really asking for and asking tough questions. Does poverty drive inequality or does inequality drive poverty? Women just were not able to reach out and to look for support. We may all be in the same ocean, but some are in super yachts and some are clinging to debris. Emissions are expected to rise to their highest ever level. What should we do now? We are in the same world. We work together for a common goal. Hello and welcome to Oxfam Ireland's First World Problems podcast. I'm Andrew Trimble, the washed up international rugby player. On this episode, I'm out of my depth. We'll be taking a look at two issues that are inextricably linked, poverty and inequality. Not to sound like Eddie O'Sullivan, this seems like a little bit of a chicken and egg situation. Does poverty drive inequality or does inequality drive poverty? But then, as I said, I'm no expert and that's why I'm very happy to be joined by two people who know a lot more about these issues than I do. First, I'd like to welcome Colette Bennett, uh, Economic and Social Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. Colette has also worked in research and policy with the same organization and has a background in law, social justice and public policy. Also joining us today is Oxfam Ireland CEO, Jim Clarkin, who's also an executive director of Oxfam International. He's a member of the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission, and he's been involved in the foundation of the Irish Refugee and Migrant Coalition, Stop Climate Chaos, the Irish Coalition for Business and Human Rights, and he's a former chair of DOCAS. Jim, you sound unbelievably busy. <laughs> Colette, the same. Welcome, Colette and Jim. Thanks so much for coming along and joining me. We know you've got busy schedules. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Adam. Thank you very much. So let's start by talking about something that we're all sick of talking about, to be honest. That's COVID. It seems like this pandemic has had an impact on everything. And I was just wondering how it's affected poverty and inequality, both in Ireland and in the countries where Oxfam works. Colette, do you want to kick us off? Sure. I mean, in, in terms of how it's impacted poverty and inequality, it's, again, I suppose to borrow your own phrase, it's a bit chicken and egg. So the latest poverty and deprivation data from the CSO, from the Survey on Income and Living Conditions, only goes far as back as 2019. So it's just pre-pandemic. But even at that, we've seen an increase in deprivation. We have seen a, a decrease in the rate of poverty but the numbers in terms of the actual numbers of real people that are experiencing poverty are still in that 630,000 bracket, 200,000 children. And we've got about a million people, just under a million people experiencing what's called enforced deprivation. So in terms of, I suppose, how the pandemic has affected it, we know, for example, that people who are at risk of poverty or experiencing poverty or whatever kind of nomenclature you want to put on it, we know that they have higher rates of educational disadvantage. We know, for example, that, you know, when you talk about certain communities or children with additional needs, we're talking about reduced hours at an educational level. And obviously, the restrictions in relation to the pandemic has just exacerbated that. There are real and serious concerns in relation to not only the educational impact and what that's going to do in terms of the gap, the time that has been lost, particularly for children from disadvantaged areas or experiencing educational disadvantage, but also the economic impact over time for the country in terms of that gap in education is very difficult to make up. Sticking with the theme, I suppose, of education, then you have, you know, not alone have you got the, the, the issues in relation to the, those kind of shorter hours in schools. You've also got children whose only real social 
outlet whose safe space is in the educational context. So again, you know, it was not surprising that we saw a spike in referrals to Tusla once the schools opened again. Because for many kids, they're the only people, the teachers are the only people who are spotting if there are issues at home. They may be the only place where they're getting a decent school meal and the only place where they have an outlet to see friends, to actually express themselves. And it's very difficult. So in terms of, you know, the pandemic has impacted people experiencing poverty in those kind of ways. Similarly, when we look at the, like the health context, we've seen, for example, that certainly at the height of COVID, those more working class or more disadvantaged areas in Ireland had a COVID rate of two and a half, three times the national incidence rate. So if you compared, say, BlackRock, for example, they had a lower than national incidence rate compared to Ballymun Finglas that had three times the national average. So, you know, it, again, we see in terms of generally speaking, pre-pandemic, we had a two-tiered healthcare system. Those who have medical cards, you know, have some way to go in terms of accessing healthcare. Those who fall between that gap between a medical card or a GP card and private insurance have very little access. And then those who are on private, particularly good private health insurance, have a much better experience in terms of healthcare. And we have long advocated for the removal of this two-tiered system and, and to instead to have a, a system that's based on need as opposed to ability to pay. We've seen, so for example, an increase on the uh, waiting lists for outpatient care. So obviously there's been a huge and, and, and a necessary concentration in the healthcare system in relation to COVID in terms of trying to vaccinate, in terms of trying to get the testing done, um, in terms of isolations and all of those things, as well as the restrictions that GP care had to put on itself in terms of how many patients it could take in at any time and all of those things. But again, it was those who have a difficult time engaging pre-pandemic are in the worst space when it comes to this. They also, because many people who are experiencing poverty live in very difficult household situations. So whether that's because of abuse, whether that's because of living in communal establishments or whether that's because their housing isn't fit for purpose, that has had a knock-on effect. So never before, I'm sure some historian will correct me, I'm sure there has been before, has there been such a connection between health and housing. So we did very early on in the pandemic at the end of March, we did just a, a bit of a kind of tosh in terms of, well, how many households are really vulnerable here when you go talking about the impact of the pandemic, the need to, to self-isolate, the need to social distance, the need to have proper hygiene. And we found that there were about 14,700 households in that space. So you're talking about the 4,000 households in direct provision. You're talking about roughly around four to 500 households in relation to domestic violence or domestic sexual and gender-based violence. You're talking about traveller accommodation. You're talking about people in overcrowded accommodation. And that's only based on the official data from the housing agency statistics. And we would have queries in relation to that and how it's reported on. And because of all of that, we came to the conclusion that there was about just under 15,000 very vulnerable households that needed to have a, a much more rapid 
response. Now, we were happy to see the reductions in homelessness, for example, but that is based on a short-term measure that was implemented because of the pandemic, again, in terms of restrictions of evictions, and particularly for those who had an income drop because of the pandemic. And then finally, I suppose, in relation to all of that, and it's it's related, I suppose, is the, the vaccination. So the, the vaccination rollout rolled out by age. And uh, certainly there are communities who just didn't have the same, I suppose, access to vaccinations that others would have had. So, for example, I I remember listening to a lady representing um, a travel organisation in Cork, and she was saying, you know, it's great that the, the vaccine is being rolled out. Absolutely, it is. But it's going to take quite some time before it gets to my community because it has to go 80, 75, 70, 65. We don't know anybody that's over 65. So they're still in a very long queue. So I don't know if exactly that's answered your question in terms of how the pandemic has impacted poverty. That It's possibly the other way around or, or a bit of both. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we potentially might have come to the conclusion during the pandemic that COVID was the great leveler. But that's not the case (laughs) because that's a little bit of a lazy assumption to come to because we assume we all could potentially get it. We all could be in isolation. We're all in lockdown. You know, our kids are all potentially off school. But wealthy people and more fortunate people will deal with that better than people who are experiencing inequality at the minute. Jim, is that kind of the way it's been? Absolutely. And the way you've described it, Andrew, brings to mind a comment from the UN Secretary General Guterres, who said that, you know, we may all be in the same ocean, but some are in super yachts and some are clinging to debris. I mean, what we've seen is that what has happened over the last 18 months has dramatically exacerbated inequalities across the world, both in this part of the world, in the wealthier parts of the world, and certainly in developing countries and the difference between the two. If you look at the extreme top end of wealth, the world's top billionaires, 10 billionaires, recouped any losses within the first few months and have dramatically increased their wealth over this period of time. Whereas we see the poorest half of humanity, it'll take possibly 10 years for them to get back to where they were, you know, a year or two ago. And you bear in mind that, and, and Andrew, you'll know this from your own travel, from the work that you've done with ourselves in Oxfam, you know, across the world, we've made some progress in fighting extreme poverty over the last 20, 25 years. Still a very long way to go, but progress has been made. But certainly the sense is that the the pandemic will have reversed much of the progress that's been made. So we're going backwards in a fairly dramatic way. And it hits home in a very real way when you see we're heading towards a famine-like conditions in a number of countries across the world right now. You're talking about Yemen, you're talking about South Sudan, uh, you're talking about other parts of Africa. And it's we're very careful, as you know, about how we use that language. And we haven't been using that language in recent years, but that's where we're headed towards. I mean, you have a, a country like Yemen that's in, a, in the grips of a, a major conflict over the past seven years where they have a, extremely weak health systems to begin with. Then they're hit with the pandemic as well and the, the systems completely collapse. There just basically isn't any medical support in lots of countries like that. And then you even see more middle-income countries like India, you know, where you have, on paper, India is a middle-income country. But I mean, the truth of it is you have extreme poverty in India in the same way as you have extreme poverty in sub-Saharan Africa. And you've seen the, the impact that COVID has had devastating. And I'm speaking to colleagues in India all the time about the very human devastating impact on people's lives and, and the inability of the health system to be able to handle you know, very basic things like providing oxygen for people and people dying for want of oxygen, let alone medication and all the rest. 
So, you know, th- that's been part of it. You also say that during the, the lockdowns in many developing countries where people are dependent on a day-to-day basis for their their, their income, you know, so you're talking about casual trading or casual labor or labor that's paid by the day and all of a sudden that's shut down and, you know, immediately people are pushed into crisis and, and into destitution. So it has had a, a huge impact on extreme poverty as well as on extreme inequality. And the IMF believe that it's, you know, it will have the worst impact on inequality in the world and that every single country in the world is likely to suffer greater inequality as a result of this. And it's manifested in so many other ways. I mean, Colette made reference to gender-based violence, violence against women and girls. You know, that that is a global pandemic of another kind and it has been deeply exacerbated by by the COVID situation, by people being locked at home, by people not being occupied and so on. And across the world, we've also seen that the pandemic has had a disproportionate impact on women who, across all of the world, bear the largest burden of care, uh, unpaid care, uh, whether it be for children or for older people or for people with sicknesses and so on. And then also race and black people and people of color across the world have been more impacted by COVID than the white population. So it has really deepened existing inequalities. Oftentimes, people of color are working in more precarious less well-paid work. They're at the front line, whether it be at the healthcare side of things or whether it be in retail or in vital services that we all need. And, you know, hopefully people are starting to value the local shop more than they did before and the local, you know, amenities and services that we all know are essential to our existence. But oftentimes these are, you know, not well-paid jobs. They're at the front line and they're occupied oftentimes by women, people of color, migrants in this part of the world oftentimes. And you know, they've been deeply affected by the pandemic as well. So it has certainly, we say, exacerbated inequalities that already existed that we knew about, that we've been working to try and reduce those gaps and certainly is likely to increase extreme poverty. So we need to relook at the way we, we structure our societies and the way we, and how we find our way out of this. I mean, obviously it's been extraordinary what has been done on the medical and scientific front to develop vaccines. And I'm sure we'll, we'll chat about vaccines shortly, but how do we also look at how we rebuild economies now? How do we change the way and learn from these mistakes that have been made or the way that structural inequality is built into all of our economies and our societies and how can we improve that? And there is a moment for us to, to consider this at this time. Absolutely, Jim. So definitely keen to get into the vaccine rollout and, and the inequality that has been a part of that. But I mean, you talked about we've lost ground really during COVID, you know, any of the progress we've made before in terms of equality and it's kind of been undone or we've certainly took a step backwards. How do we address that? Can we make up, you know, you're talking about the additional inequality for women being more affected by the pandemic, people of color, vulnerable people. How do we address these imbalances and how do we correct this and make up some of the ground that we've lost? We start by identifying them and recognizing that this is a real issue. These are who are most affected by the pandemic. Everybody's been affected. Let's not, you know, let's not understate that. But some much, much more so than others. So as we rebuild, as we look at economic plans to look at both national economies and international economies, how do we ensure that when key economic decisions are going to be made, because, you know, we're talking about potential global recessions and so on, how do we ensure that whatever economic decisions are being made at a political level, that they don't make the situation worse, in fact, that they make it better. So that means investing in public services, ensuring that the kind of things that Colette has spoken about, education for those most vulnerable, healthcare for those most vulnerable, and general services for people who are at those margins or in poorer parts of the world are protected 
and give people that kind of baseline of of protection as we look to build back society and build back economies. But the temptation, and we've seen this in the past, when recession hits, it tends to be the poorest parts of society that are most affected. And it tends to be, you know, wealthy people tend to be protected and it tends to exacerbate inequality. So we can learn from this. And then we need to look at budgeting through an inequality lens. If a certain decision is going to be made, does it make inequality worse or better? And it can be done. These kind of decisions can be made and this kind of thinking needs to be brought to the table. How do we ensure that we protect investment in the the most essential services for those who cannot afford to, to go to a private operator or a private healthcare provider or whatever it is? So, you know, those are key political decisions and we need the political establishment to to ensure that they do their job and that they, the public are aware of that and, you know, look at this as, as an opportunity of some kind to address those deep inequalities that we know already exist. Yeah, if I can come in there, like I, I think you hit the nail completely on the head there, Jim, in terms of it is down to political choices. You know, we are where we are because of political choices. You know, we see so many people experiencing poverty and deprivation and real life impacts because of the the choices that have been made. I mean, we, you know, like from everything in terms of of what we're experiencing at home to the millions, 55 million displaced people who are not social distancing, who can't self-isolate, who you know, are, are experiencing poverty on a scale that we can only imagine, you know, and it, it, that all comes down to that global movement that how do we actually engage? Like I was interested, very interested to read the Oxfam report in relation to the inequalities and, and how that there had been such wealth generation within the first nine months of the year compared to the damage that has been done for very, very low income populations. So I did a bit of totting in the in the Irish context and the top five Irish billionaires made 4.3 billion last year, like an additional 4.3 billion. And like it's it's just incredible. Like that is more than the budget that we will be discussing in terms of how we we engage, like according to the, the summer economic statement, our budget is roughly about 1.5 billion. So you're talking almost three times that amount, three times the amount we're going to be talking about when it comes to October in terms of increased healthcare provision, in terms of increased housing provision and everything else, education, public services, all of those things. So it's especially stark when you look at what happened with the income tax receipts, for example. Income tax only went down by 1% between 2019 and 2020. That means that all of those people who lost their jobs or went on the 2.6 million fewer hours were lower paid because it had such little impact on the income tax receipts. We were essentially buffered. So I would reject wholeheartedly any sort of narrative that says we have to put the brakes on the spending now. We're now starting to move and tighten our belts and and our deficit reduction narrative. We've again, you know, the, the summer economic statement already has started that, that by 2025, we'll be reducing the deficit. That is not the choice we need to make. The choice we need to make is a, a societal and a global choice. I mean, it's not enough to say, you know, Ireland is, is now kind of a, an island all of itself. We have globalization. We are part of a bigger society. So it's, you know, again, in terms of those choices and those budget choices, 
there's a lot to be done at home, but there's also a huge amount to be done in terms of our overseas development space. And we have a fairly good record in relation to it, but we're very shy of our UN target, our 2030 target, but also to separate out what's needed in overseas development aid and in terms of what's needed for climate, to address climate change and make sure that it's getting to the right people. So again, you know, giving it to general governments or to, to national governments is one thing, but it's been shown that very little of that is trickling down. What we need is local actors making local decisions to address this, but being funded by essentially putting a levy on wealthier countries who are causing the majority of the damage. But also uh, interesting on the wealthier country, you also look at, you know, this insane ego-driven space race by some of the wealthiest people on the planet. If their wealth alone was taxed at a reasonable rate, we're not talking about taking their wealth off them. It could pay for doses for every single person on the planet of a vaccine. So, you know, there's obscene levels of wealth that just aren't being taxed. And tax is the other bit that we need to talk about. We need to talk about what's a fair tax system, what's a fair redistribution that needs to happen across the world. I mean, you know, when people reach a certain level of wealth, they don't necessarily add any further economic value to the planet, to their country, to society. And a lot of these people can be, you know, kind of inherited wealth, you know, so they they haven't even earned it in the first place. So, but in any event, we do need to look at bridging that gap and ensuring that there is a fair share of taxation paid that can then be used to, and let's remember that every company in the world relies on the public services that are invested and infrastructure that's invested in their country. You take Ireland as an example. I mean, we require housing and infrastructure and broadband and all those kind of things, which are often paid for by the state. So it's only right and proper that those who benefit from them should be contributing. And similarly, at, at a global level, you know, we know as as Oxfam, and we've been working on this for many years, the, the amount of taxation that's lost to developing countries because it's being channeled through Ireland and other places so tax is not being paid. The tax that should be paid in Malawi or in Tanzania or in uh, in Rwanda that should be used to pay for services there is not being levied there. And big global corporations and wealthy individuals are in a position to move money around. And, you know, there's some progress made on that, but there's a very long way to go still. And I mean, on, on to Colette's point in relation to international development, Ireland has a good reputation, but we still need to deliver on our 2030 commitment, which was a 2015 commitment when I started working in this... <laughs> in this uh, in this area uh, and so on and the, and the goalpost keeps moving but it's essential Ireland rightly has a very good reputation and the support that Oxfam gets from Irish aid is vital to our life-saving work in countries like Syria and Yemen and South Sudan and vital to the development work we do in Malawi and Tanzania and other places but we do need to see government here living up to its commitments now is not the time to even consider anything except continuing to develop its commitment in order to fight poverty and reduce inequalities across the world. So ultimately, Jim, what you're talking about there, governments are slow to act. And, you know, the 2015 commitment becomes the 2030 commitment. Why are governments slow to act in this? Why are they not motivated to implement legislation that's going to add to equality or help what we're talking about here? Well, I suppose there's the macro and there's the micro, I, I guess. And, you know, from, from an international development perspective, Ireland is a very proactive actor and it's now got its vital space on the UN Security Council and it's playing a a very important role in terms of conflict resolution and in terms of key areas that the UN Security Council covers. And Ireland is, as a small country, has a very credible voice and a a loud voice oftentimes in these spaces. And that's built on years and years of of good diplomacy, of a, you know, a general sense of an outward facing country that has a long history 
of working in development prior to that working, you know, with missionaries and all the rest of it. So Ireland has a, has a big global footprint and it's a global footprint that doesn't come with a colonial baggage and doesn't come with a militarization kind of baggage and so on. But it still does need to move forward on its commitments. And it's, you know, it can't be at the whim of any given budget any year that when we're short a few, Bob, we'll take it from here. Or we won't deliver on on those pieces. But more broadly, I suppose, we would be saying that budgets need to be multi-annual, but they also need to be, and this is even national budgets, need to have that inequality lens so that when they're being tested, when they're being assessed by decision makers, that they, at a minimum, do no harm, as the medics would say, that they do work to try and improve the situation for citizens uh, and for people living in Ireland. So that they're the kind of political decisions. And look, you you know, different political parties and different individuals often believe in these things, but believe in a different way of getting to them. So how do we ensure that whoever happens to be, you know, in power at a given time, makes sure that the policies that they want to pursue do no harm and help to improve the situation, particularly for those who are most marginalised? And, and Ireland, the small island, does continue to build on its international commitment. Colette, where's where's all the philanthropists? <laughs> if I knew, I'd let you know. Um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. We are our top five billionaires increase their wealth by 4.3 billion and we don't see any major increase in philanthropy. I could be very wrong, but it is it is quite suspect. Should we name them? <laughs> I think you could probably guess, actually. Um, but in terms of, I suppose, what, what Jim was saying, you know, I think we need to, to have those kind of multi-annual funding commitments. I think part of the problem as well is that politicians tend to think in five-year cycles. And this government is in a particularly odd space in that it's thinking in two and a half year cycles because we're going to get a change in Taoiseach and a kind of a change in, in leadership halfway through the government's term. So it's constant electioneering, really. So there's a lot to be wary of in terms of the, the populism. We've seen what the damage that it can do, you know, the Trump and the Brexit and all of the pain that went with that and is, is continuing. And, you know, I think there's probably too much weight put on social media engagement and not enough on proper social dialogue, proper deliberation, proper consideration of, of all of the issues in a, a really in-depth way. We're getting policy by soundbite at the moment. And what we need is to have much more thought put into how things are developed, how strategies are developed, how those strategies interplay with each other. So, you know, as, as Jim was saying, like we can't have this thing where, well, actually, we have to make budget reduction. So ODA is the thing that has to go or, you know, housing instruction is the thing that has to go um, or welfare cuts. That's that's the way forward. It, it has to be, well, actually, if we do that, what impact is it going to have over here and have a proper expanded look, proper cross departmental look at how all of these policies and the budgets that go with them? interplay with each other and I think that's something that has been been missing for quite a long time I mean again Jim mentioned equality budgeting and there is some work being done around equality budgeting but it tends to focus on gender equality as opposed to socioeconomic equality there was a, a well-being framework published or I suppose a, a framework for a framework published after last year's budget and there has been work, I mean, I was part of the, the working group with the National Economic and Social Council, NESC, and the Taoiseach's office have published their first report as well in relation to all of that. So it has to coincide with transformational change. There has to be that political willingness to see beyond yourself 
um, and to look at actually what is better for society. And some of that is going to be an ideological tie. Some of it is going to be, you know, everybody's looking in the right direction, but through an entirely different lens. So I'm not saying that any political party wants to increase poverty. I think everybody's just going at it in a very different way. Um, and I don't think the impacts are fully fleshed out. Okay, um, Colette, uh, Jim mentioned at the start vaccine inequality, and I know Oxfam's a member of the People's Vaccine Alliance. I'm keen to get, get Jim's thoughts on that. But even just, Colette, could you set the tone a little bit? Just give us a bit of an understanding of, of why there is such inequality in terms of the vaccine rollout. What's motivating big pharma companies producing the vaccine? Why are they prioritizing certain parts of the world? Is it all economic? Is it all just looking after ourselves? Is it the same problem we've seen in a number of different areas? But I think in a European context, we had the issue of, you know, not letting the UK do so much better than us. So, you know, Brexit was still very fresh in the minds. The UK were stockpiling at one point and we had a, a huge difficulty getting the contracts off the ground in terms of actually trying to get a vaccine rollout at a European level. I think what was missing from that was our European obligations to other countries and to actually have what you, what you, you call the people's vaccine and to actually keep an eye on that. And I was listening to Dr. Mike Ryan from the World Health Organization and he was saying, you know, can you really justify vaccinating a healthy young person, a healthy teenager over an, an older person or an you know, compromised person or a frontline worker in another country? Is that really the choice that you want to make? And I think we have unfortunately made those choices at a, a national and a European level. Jim, give us a bit more information on the People's Vaccine Alliance, please. Sure. So we launched the People's Vaccine Alliance in Ireland just less than two weeks ago now. And Mike Ryan joined us for the launch, as did Winnie Bianima, who's a former Oxfam colleague. She's now head of UN AIDS. And we had a number of people from Ireland. So it's a group of NGOs and healthcare professionals here in Ireland and uh, trade unions and a number of others activists on, on the subject. And basically the reason that we have it is because the vaccine rollout, which is a, is a wonderful thing and it's a great advance in science and medicine, is incredibly successful in this part of the world. But in certain developing countries, there's as little as 0.2% of the population have been vaccinated. You know, one of the suggestions is that we almost share the, the crumbs from the table, whatever left, whatever's left over when we're done with them on our, ourselves. And that seems to be a lot of the approach. But what we're proposing is that we develop what's called the TRIPS waiver. This is a rule within the WTO, the World Trade Organization rules, where you can waive intellectual property and know-how rights for very extreme events. And there hasn't been more extreme an event across the world in 100 years in terms of health and there's precedence for this. This has been done before when it came to the HIV AIDS crisis. So what we're proposing is, the, the, and the reason we want to do that is because at the heart of the vaccine rollout problem is supply. There just aren't enough vaccines being produced. And because there are only five or six companies across the world who have that intellectual property, it's not going to happen for, you know, estimates are it could go as far as 2024 before the world is vaccinated. And that's unacceptable. It's unacceptable at a whole load of levels. It's unacceptable because it's wrong you know, that we're going to allow the wealthiest part of the world to be vaccinated and just allow everybody else to languish and, and die in huge numbers. Don't forget that there are 100,000 people dying of COVID every week. So this pandemic's not gone away and it's nowhere near it in many parts of the world, across the world. And But it also makes no sense that, you know, we, we know what's happening with variants. The variants will keep arising 
if we don't get our hands around this, if we don't globally, you know, the rhetoric all along is nobody's safe until everybody's safe. Well, guess what? Three quarters of the world is not safe and they won't be safe unless we vaccinate them. The pharmaceutical companies and unfortunately, the Irish government and the European Union are resisting the, the TRIPS waiver. They're saying that, no, we'll wait till the capacity is built. And, and there are all kinds of spurious arguments as to why they won't support it. But I think it's vital to remember that th- those vaccines, miraculous and all as they are, were developed using public funding. So, yes, the pharmaceutical companies were involved, but there was public billions and billions of public funding was invested in this. So those vaccines need to be a public good. The pharma companies are going to make huge profits and, you know, some of the wealthiest people in the world who own or have large ownership of of pharma companies are already surfacing to the top uh, small percentage of wealthy people. They will do very well. They will make huge profits, but they don't have to make profits at the cost of people's lives. So what we're saying is that, you know, because of the fact that it has been invested in by the public, but, but primarily because of the fact that it's not right to allow people in other parts of the world to die because they don't have access and because our governments were wealthy enough to shore up whatever supply was there at the, in, in the early stages. That needs to be addressed. There's a solution staring us in the face. I haven't heard a credible answer or rejection of that as an idea yet. I've heard, as I say, spurious reasons that the pharma companies will no longer uh, develop drugs. Of course they will. They'll always continue to develop drugs as long as there's money in it to be made. Yes, there is a global issue about how do we develop drugs overall? I mean, and how do you balance the private versus the public funding in creation of all kinds of medications? Yes, of course, that's a, that's an argument for another day. But right now we have this thing that has taken a grip on the world. We have a solution that it's very clear. There is no strong counter argument to it. We need Ireland and Europe to move the dial. The US already has. The US are supporting this TRIPS waiver and we need, we need Ireland and Europe, Europe to do it too. There are 144 companies across 35 countries that have already been identified as locations where vaccines could be produced very quickly if they were given the rights to do it. Jim, you mentioned there's been no credible argument why they wouldn't implement the TRIPS waiver. What's the, what are the incredible arguments? What are the, what are the ridiculous arguments from the big pharma companies? Well, and it's not just from the big pharma companies because we know here governments are also using similar language. But one of them is that there's no idle vaccine production capacity. We, Knowledge Ecology International, who, who monitors these things, has identified at least 144 manufacturing facilities in 35 countries that could be potentially used to manufacture COVID vaccines if a system was used to share the intellectual property and the technical know-how. Some of the language being used is quite offensive, suggesting that developing countries and middle-income countries wouldn't have the ability somehow to make vaccines. We, the truth be told, we already know that India is considered by many to be the pharmacy of the world. So many of us consume or use medications that are produced in India, also Brazil and South Africa. You know, many, many countries are already producing drugs at a, at a very large scale for all of us. This idea somehow that if we somehow allowed this to happen this one time, that it would somehow collapse the entire pharmacy system, the entire uh, production of medication system. It's nonsense. This is this is a once-in-a-lifetime event, a once-in-a-hundred-year event. Uh, we need to, to do dramatic things in order to make sure that we can resolve this. And there is precedent. When the HIV-AIDS global crisis happened after several years and pressure from organizations like Oxfam and many health organizations across the world, we persuaded eventually governments to agree to, to this kind of a waiver so that generic drugs could be produced, ARV drugs, which have saved the lives of millions of people. 
Uh, and that the mistake that we made at that time globally was that it took us too long to do it. This other suggestion that it would take too long to negotiate this TRIPS waiver, well, this proposal has been there at the WTO from South Africa and India for eight or nine months already, and governments are sitting on their hands. So they're, you know, and the idea that it's exclusively produced because of pharma investment, that's just not true. As I said maybe earlier, billions and billions of dollars and euros have been invested by of public funds in creation of vaccines. So there's no genuine, credible argument for not having this. The issue is if we don't, many, many millions of people will die unnecessarily. Global poverty will be desperately exacerbated unnecessarily. And the world will continue to be a threat from variants for the foreseeable. A lot of the work that Oxfam does on poverty and inequality is supported by Irish Aid. Do you want to give us a bit of an idea of how how we're supporting this, some of the work that Oxfam are doing? I know I got to see it in person in Tanzania a number of years back. Well, the Irish Aid funding and support to Oxfam is, is absolutely vital to our ability to do our work and other organizations like ourselves. And that's down to the generosity of the Irish public and the the solidarity that Irish people have with people in developing countries. Time and time again, there's research carried out and time and time again, you know, 80% or roughly 80% of the Irish population support uh, investment through Irish aid in international development and humanitarian work. And our work, and we have to give tremendous credit to Irish aid and to government support over this past 18 months, particularly, which allowed us to be more flexible with the way we operate in country to adapt to the changing environments that we were confronting because of the pandemic and because of the impact on our existing kind of long-term development work and how we were able to deliver on women's rights and work with youth and so on, as well as key humanitarian supports. We were in a position to support people in Gaza in the very early stages of this, uh, thanks to public support. We were also, you know, working in in Yemen and in many other places where it has become a life-saving issue as opposed to a development issue, if you know what I mean. It's, it's a humanitarian crisis we're facing. And unfortunately, it's going to require ongoing support and investment, uh, particularly as this, this hunger crisis that's likely to fall from this is, is going to only get worse, unfortunately, in the short term, unless globally we ensure support. But we have been very fortunate with the support we've had. It's, it's central to the success of the work we have. And we have a very strong relationship with, with Irish Aid and their commitment and Irish people's commitment to the work that we do is central to everything. Otherwise, we, we just couldn't possibly do this. Thanks so much, Colette Bennett, Jim Clark, and thanks for joining me on Oxfam Ireland's First World Problems podcast. You can post your thoughts and comments in the podcast using the Twitter hashtag First World Problems Pod and check out OxfamIreland.org to learn a little bit more about Oxfam's work. Next time, I'll be chatting about Oxfam's humanitarian work with Oxfam Uganda's humanitarian program manager, Magdalene Nandawula, and Colin Byrne, humanitarian manager for Oxfam Ireland. Thanks again. <laughs>